computer. This is data. I'm an android. I'm a basketball. I was processing all of the information. Processing. One of those idiots who believe in analytics. Rangers pick basketball. Analytics was crap. Does not compute. Just because you got good stats doesn't mean you're a good team. everyone and welcome to another edition of the Lakers Exceptionalism Podcast. I'm your host for the day, Tim. You know me as Cranjus McBasketball on Twitter and we are recapping a little bit and talking about some lessons learned from the Lakers second preseason game from uh, this Wednesday, October 6th against the Phoenix Suns. Lakers got clobbered. Again, game doesn't matter. Fourth quarter was some scrubs were in, uh, some South Bay Lakers versus guys that won't be playing as much for Phoenix. The Lakers were missing more key players than the Suns. Results don't matter here. I don't care about the stat line or the results. We did learn a little bit more about this team. Uh, I'm encouraged by the offense. The defense is certainly troubling. Uh, In almost big news, AD had a little bit bit of a potential injury scare. Uh, If you didn't see it, and I saw Harrison Fagan posted, uh, from the angle he was able to see, there was a little clip of, what looked like Jay Crowder being pushed into AD, but you couldn't see if anyone was behind Crowder. Uh, that I saw during the game, and then as I was going through film today, saw the play again and realized, no, there's nobody behind Crowder. Um, so here's, this is, you know, I'm not making anything up. This is what happened. Second quarter, Suns were bringing the ball up. They got, I think it was a defensive rebound. They were bringing the ball up to the other side of the court. AD is running back on defense. Jay Crowder is jogging back as well. Crowder changes his path he had been running up the sideline basically pointing towards the uh, left corner to go stand in the corner he changes trajectory towards more the right corner on the opposite side of the court and that puts him square behind ad uh and he also sped up as he was doing this you like i posted a slow-mo video and a full speed video on the slow-mo it's it's hard to tell full speed he, he puts like a little nitro boost on and is running right into AD from behind him. Uh, he went from swinging his arms the way you normally would, you know, up and back, up and back. He was getting all the way back to his hip every time he was swinging his arms back to suddenly before, this was a step before the contact, as he's speeding up, he puts his left arm up. Uh, you can see almost see him almost bracing for the contact, just a very unnatural running motion. And then what he does is he steps on AD's left ankle with his left foot. And as they're both falling, he uses that left arm that had been prepped, uh, reaches out, pushes AD. And then as they're both falling, he then is able to somehow swipe at both of AD's ankles with each of his hands, which watching live, I did not notice on the replay, slowing it down. I was like, holy crap, like, come on, man. Like that, that is the odds of that happening randomly are very low combined with the fact that he was looking right at AD and you know he's on offense Crowder was on offense there's no reason for him to like trail AD he's not guarding him he ran into the same lane squared up with them sped up braced himself for contact and then had follow through with both of his hands to both of AD's ankles so I'm just happy nobody got hurt uh it's easy to say after the initial contact you know guys are just falling it's you know we can't blame Crowder for what happened it looked fairly intentional at least the lead up Uh, which certainly makes me look at the rest of the play with a little bit of a different eye. This is someone who we've seen in the past tangled up with dudes, injure people, be in a lot of near injury situations, even last playoffs against the Lakers. 
So it certainly stuck out to me and a lot of others. The complete like unnatural motion with Crowder's right arm, instead of reaching down to brace his contact, he reaches out in front of him and reaches at 80's right ankle and swipes side to side. That come on. Like that is not that that is not natural. And the fact that just by some strange, insane coincidence, he was able to step on AD's left ankle and then hit both of his feet that were moving, that were, you know, one was front, one was behind, with both of Crowder's hands, which one needed to extend further than the other, is just certainly quite a coincidence. So, yeah, I, I don't like it. I, I'm just glad AD's not hurt. Uh, if they were both, you know, if he was running in the same direction, or sorry, if, if Crowder were running just in a straight line and they got tangled up, he put his arm out to brace himself. Maybe it looks like a push, maybe not. That's a non-story. But this looks pretty obvious to me. So take a look at it. I posted it on Twitter. You can make of it what you will. This is noteworthy to me because the Lakers play the Suns again on Sunday. And then again, four games into the regular season, and which is just two weeks from now. So something to keep an eye on. During the game, this doesn't seem to be something... Like, AD didn't really react. It looked like he just thought it was just a mistake. And I can completely understand that. Watching live, it was hard to tell. I would imagine the Lakers have seen this since then, and AD has seen this. And uh, I'm just, I point this out because it's interesting to see what will happen as these teams play two times in the next two weeks, one in a preseason game that doesn't matter, and one in a game that does matter. Um, so take a look at that. The uh, I put the videos on Twitter. Lakers people, you know, brought out their pitchforks for Crowder. Suns fans brought out their pitchforks for me. It's just Twitter being Twitter. Uh, but that's that's just what happened. Also noteworthy, before this, a quarter before it, AD got Crowder with another groin kick. He, he had one in the playoffs. He had another one in this game in the first quarter. They were both laughing, kind of helped each other up afterwards. I don't know if that had any, had any relation to the trip later, but is certainly some suspicion. It's suspicious given the, uh, you know, proximity of the two events. So we'll see what happens there. Uh, in other notable news and, and with quotes, uh, some... some Interesting pregame and postgame quotes, I'd say, from Vogel. Pregame, uh, and actually, no, actually, wait, hang on. Let's start with the postgame about Melo. Postgame, he said the team has confidence in Melo and that they, quote, brought him here for a reason. He says he'll have the green light to attack certain matchups. And we saw that. This was Melo's first game. He was out there. He got some switches on to Chris Paul and took advantage. He went right at him. And I like this quote because it implies the existence of green, yellow, and red lights for Mello, or I guess green and, and, and red. Uh, I guess some yellow in there as well. I, I don't know exactly how you would uh, govern that, but I don't mind it. Mello's been a good 1v1 player, but on this team with this group of players, earlier in the shot clock, it's generally probably not your best option unless he has a great matchup. And it sounds like the Lakers are aware of that and they're IDing matchups and they say, hey, if you get on Chris Paul, you can go at him. I don't care if there's three seconds left or 18 seconds left on the shot clock. So that to me is smart. And that's a good way to allow for balance and allow for this guy to do what he's good at when it's the right time to do it. So I, I appreciate that. Um, that was a, an encouraging comment to me. We also heard from Vogel before the game, a quarter on Kent Bazemore, uh, the direct quote that was that he had separated himself some, end quote, in terms of being one of the team's best defenders. Uh, Bazemore spoke after the game and, and said things around his energy and activity and enjoying Frank Vogel's scheme. And to me, after seeing these two games, this is, you know, 
Frank Vogel is handing Vegas Bays a stack of chips and telling him to go have fun, and he's going and having fun. He's he's out there hunting as a defensive playmaker. He is seeking out steals and strips, and he's stunting at drives, and he's being disruptive. The Lakers have some perimeter defensive issues, and Kent Bazemore, as an intermediate, you know, before you get to the rim line of defense, is doing what he can to disrupt those drives and help out the Lakers defensively. So I appreciate that. We're seeing it does appear to be part of the scheme. We're Hey, we're happy to stunt, and we're going to rotate behind it. And the Lakers so far have executed pretty well. Uh, so it's cool to see them leveraging a skill set he has and leaning into it and him enjoying that. Uh, I remember just weeks ago, there was a contingent of people thinking Bazemore wouldn't play much this year. I never, just, I never agreed with that, and I stand by my bold prediction from a couple pods ago that Kent Bazemore will get the fourth most minutes for the Lakers this season. I just think he's... Frank Vogel, we know he loves defense. This team needs spacing. Bazemore's going to be a 3 and D guy. He is, with bench lineups, when the stars aren't out there, he's not going to do a whole lot. Or if he's trying to do things, self-create or pick and rolls, it's not going to go well, and we saw that in this game. But when he's out there just to be fed on offense, he's a good catch-and-shoot guy. He can move around and make himself open. And defensively, he plays really well, and he generates a lot of activity in a way that's impactful, but also clearly stands out to, you know, the people in the room when he's in practice. So that's the sort of thing that is going to get their attention and it translates from a team impact standpoint. So so we're good with that. We also saw Frank Vogel postgame say, quote, I just like to see us execute our habits better. Um, he said their discipline has to get better. Uh, he talked about, you know, we're going to go work on this stuff. And I thought it was interesting. Mike Trudell asked him a question about how much harder it is to evaluate things with Braun and Russ out. Uh, Vogel responded and said that it's different, but them in or out of the game doesn't change the team's scheme or system. This to me is really encouraging. This to me signals that they have a plan. They're revamping this offense, not, you know, accidentally or stumbling into good plays or because they don't have the stars and they need to start running some plays, they're putting in good plays because they're good plays and it's going to make this team better, whether it's the stars or the role players or some of those secondary creators running them. So that to me is a a great, great sign. He's saying the perfect things. And I mean, we'll have to go see how it plays out. We'll check in a couple weeks from now if this is still happening, but so far so good from an on-court and off-court standpoint with what we're hearing about the offensive scheme. Another quote that stood out to me in Vogel's post-game presser was uh, he was asked about Melo, you know, his first game, how was he moving around, stuff like that. Vogel said that Melo didn't have much space to work with in the post because, quote, we didn't space appropriately. We haven't done a lot of post-offense in our training camp. We're trying to open things up and play through movement more this year, end quote. That, to me, is really encouraging. This is answering answering the prayers from last year. Uh, It's acknowledgement that they haven't worked on this yet. It wasn't stuff they put in training camp, but this year, just like last year, we're going to see a lot of post-ups for AD, for Melo, for LeBron James. Those are the three guys, I think, this year that are going to post up a bunch. Dwight sometimes, DeAndre Jordan sometimes, they're going to be more roller cut bigs, but those three dudes are going to be posting up a good bit, and when that happens, we're going to see teams try to do what they did last year, bring extra help, make things disruptive, take good post players, and take their efficiency and drop it which is what happened because the Lakers last year were just standing around and they'd throw these skip passes and, you know, the shooters could have been better. They're better this year, but they still weren't wide open shots. They were like semi-contested shots. And even though the team hasn't put in the, you know, choreographed motion, some of those automatics for their post-ups, 
we're already seeing them put in in sets and in other like isolation drives or pick and roll drives, which aren't exactly set plays, but the team's installing principles and installing habits for like, hey, if there's a middle drive, we're going to set a pin in flare screen weak side. Uh, I want to see more info. I want I want to see more film to really confirm this, but I'm suspicious that the team has put in hammer flare screens for some baseline drives occasionally, um, or maybe it should be happening every time. I don't know. It's hard to tell because we only have two games. Over time, it'll be more clear what those principles are, but it's clear the team recognizes these things we've been yelling about on the pod for over a year, and it's coming at a perfect time. I mean, it could have, it should have come earlier. I would have loved for it to have come earlier, but it coming now is the type of thing that's going to help this team this season perform really well. So I'm encouraged by that. In the not-so-good news side of things, uh, we heard news of a Trevor Ariza injury. So he hadn't really been playing, or he hasn't played yet. He wasn't practicing with the team for a bit. And the Lakers released a press release after the game last night that Trevor Ariza had an arthroscopic debridement procedure, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Uh, performed in his right ankle today. He is expected to make a full and complete recovery. Team doctors will reevaluate Ariza in approximately eight weeks, and an update will be provided at the time. I am not the doctor. I couldn't tell you how long this will take. I've seen 12 weeks thrown out is a, you know, this is probably the average time he'd recover. That's three months. Uh, two months before you're even going to look at it certainly means he's not going to be back in two months. Um, and we know the Lakers in this may have changed this year because they've changed some medical personnel, but we know in the past they've had a ramp up procedure where if you're fully stopped and then you're needing to start again, it's going to take this amount of time and we need you to check these boxes in order for us to say, yes, you are ready to play. So we'll see what that looks like. I am not anticipating Ariza will be back to eight weeks from now. It, it's probably going to be, I don't And again, this is me guessing 10 to 12, hopefully. We'll see. Hopefully it's not some season-ending thing or it goes way, way longer. But in the meantime, the Lakers have a little bit more of a personnel issue than they already did, which is something we've talked about. They do not have much wing depth. So Ariza out means that you're going to be playing both your big guys now. Uh, you, you can't really limit their minutes, have AD play a bunch of center, not much power forward. AD is going to have to play some power forward. You're going to have to have Dwight and DeAndre Jordan playing, you know, 15 minutes or so probably at the center position. We, we could see the team go less, but if so, it, it impacts other areas. And then at power forward, you're going to have to fill out the rest of your minutes with Carmelo Anthony. How much can he give this team? Is it 15? Is it 20? Is it 25? Is it 30? That matters. And LeBron James, probably, for the rest of the minutes. Uh, and then at the small forward position, now instead of having some Ariza and a good bit of Braun, you're going to have to have a lot more Kent Bazemore and then you look at, hey, can THT play small forward? Can Wayne Ellington play small forward? <laughs> um, we saw some really small Laker lineups in this game, and it was problemsome on the defensive end. We saw a lineup with DeAndre Jordan at center, Kent Bazemore at the four, and three guards with him. And it was not good from a rebounding standpoint. Uh, who, How they're able to fill that out really matters. Because the Lakers have some guys that, for their position, have a decent bit of size. But when you're slotting them up, that advantage goes away. So being able to have the right personnel so that, you know, Russ can play his ones and be physical. Bazemore can play with twos or threes and and, and have a good physical advantage. Um, LeBron, if he's a three, he has a good physical advantage. Not as much at the four. AD at the center has a less of a physical advantage from a, like, you know, on the glass, banging with guys standpoint as he does as a power forward. So 
there's some give and take. You're weaker in some areas, stronger in others. Figuring out what the best mix is for the team comes down to weighing how all that looks and seeing how exactly you're using guys and mitigating weaknesses, leaning into strengths, all of that. We, uh, let's see, so Melo played for the first time. He, just like LeBron and AD, is going to be a nice late clock bailout guy for this team. If nothing's happening and there's eight seconds left, seven, six seconds left on the shot clock, give it to him and he can really quickly get to one of his shots. They're not always going to go in, but it's you can get for him like a look he's at least comfortable with compared to like last year, Alex Crusoe, go make something happen with five seconds. Isn't, isn't usually going to end up with, you know, an ideal shot for anybody. So playing with Ron, playing with AD, they can get some of that as well. Russ can some of, get some of that as well. But Melo as another outlet is just good to have. Um, with the Stars, he's likely going to be more of a spot-up shooter. And Frank Vogel said that post-game. With bench units, he's going to do a little bit more of that self-creation. And the green light comment, you know, makes me feel good about how he's being used. Getting to the offensive scheme, my uh, fingers were crossed. I was holding my breath. And for the first quarter, it looked a little bit rough, but going back, watching on film, I, I missed some stuff. And and from the second quarter on, it was looking better. And the first quarter was a little bit better than I thought it was. Um, but I'm glad I went through the film again. Uh, and we saw some really good design. We saw some really smart plays being run. Yet again, the execution was dreadful, but it's early. This team has time. They have to work on execution. But they're doing the right things. Um, yes, preseason games don't matter, yada, yada, yada. If the Lakers have a new offensive system with a bunch of new sets and new freelance principles, that's going to matter for their ability to win the title. And if that's the case, they're changing, you know, a whole offense. They have to practice it. They have to get those reps in and they'll do that in practice. They'll do that in their, their, their time over these next couple weeks. But in these games, that matters too. get those habits installed, get it happening live against real opponents. And if you can do that now, that's going to shorten the amount of time it's going to take to get this, you know, learning phase taken care of. If they're not doing it as much now or doing it inconsistently, and then you have to have this leak into the first couple weeks of the regular season, your performance during those games will be a little bit worse. So lean into it, you know, work through the kinks now. The wins and losses do not matter. And we're seeing the Lakers do that. I'll say the usage of set plays themselves was inconsistent. Uh, there were stretches where we saw them go to like four in a row that, you know, looked really good from a design standpoint. Some worked, some didn't work from an execution standpoint. And then there'd be really long stretches, like half a quarter, where we don't really see anything. So I'd love to see a little bit more uh, play calling discipline, I guess, or, or persistence with if, you know, if you're trying to work on these, like use them, run them a bunch, get, get those reps in. It's not helping the team as much to just you know, have THT go ISO compared to having five guys work on executing a set all at the same time. So that's what I would prefer. We'll see them get more reps in and hopefully the execution will improve as we go along. We saw a continuation of most of the sets we saw from game one happening in the second game. Uh, every game we're seeing growth and continued usage brings me closer to thinking this is a breakthrough rather than a blip. And everything they've said so far from a team standpoint, coaching standpoint, makes me think this is a breakthrough. We're seeing more split cuts, more of those quick pin downs, um, more of that quick pin down into a, a handoff with the ball screen. That's that veer action where the screener then goes and sets a pin down away from the ball. Uh, similar stuff we saw from game one. We saw a couple new sets installed. I won't dig into those here. I, I shared those on Twitter. And that was all good. I, I was happy with that. I also noticed, and this is new, what appeared to be a freelance principle really being executed well. And 
a lot of coaches will call this an automatic. It's a choreographed action or motion that's happening every time when, when you know, triggered by something else when the team isn't in a set play. So you say, all right, when we're posting up, every time we do a post up, this happens. Or every time there's a baseline drive, this happens. Or every time there's a middle drive, this happens. So I talked about those pin and flare screens. We saw a bunch of that. A lot, a lot of that. More than I had seen in any game last season for the Lakers. So that I love. I want to see more of it. The team will get better at executing it, but the intent is there. Um, I'll get back to you on the baseline drives and what that might mean. But right now, middle drives seem to mean pin and flash screens weak side, and I love it. All right. We saw the Lakers run some five out with AD at center to start the game. Didn't really have much going on from a set standpoint. Uh, that'll catch up, hopefully. And But even just kind of, you know, purely out of the placement of players, we saw how that spacing can open up drives and, and add value to guys like THT trying to get to the rim. I think if you get some organization around that five out, we can really start to see some fireworks offensively once Braun and Russ are back. So I'm encouraged by that. I'm happy to see them going five out with 80 at the five. That makes sense offensively. And they can run a lot of similar stuff that they like to run just with better spacing via this setup. Um, something that Mello said that was interesting to me is he, he mentioned still learning guys' tendencies and like where he should be when different teammates have the ball. That learning curve of chemistry won't disappear, but it can definitely be simplified a bit if you have more of those sets and those installed principles so you know where every good, everybody's going to be when something happens. Not when THT has the ball, I should be here. When AD has the ball, I should be here. When Monk has the ball, I should be here. When we run a ball screen, this is where I should be. And that helps you on, you know, the big man side, on the wing side, on the guard side. It, it certainly helps a good bit. All right. I, I love the offense. I, I, I think it's looking good. It's certainly, you know, execute better. That That's something that needs to change. Uh, and I think the split cuts are the one thing that, like, you they need to tweak the angles of how they're doing them so that they can get, you know, better looks. And, and I outlined a little bit of that on Twitter, and I've talked about it on the Discord. Feel free to ask me about that, and I can explain more. I won't spend time here talking about it, but good right idea, they need to tweak that. Everything else, I like the sets as is. It's just about executing a little bit better, setting up the screen on, on the receiving end uh, and running off of it hard, setting good hard screens, and then making the right reads. We did see a lot more freelance offense this this game. Uh, there were a lot of post-ups where it was, you know, give the ball to AD, give the ball to Melo, and watch. And hearkening back to what Vogel said after the game, they just haven't really gotten into that portion of their playbook yet, so I feel okay about it. And even when that was happening, it wasn't awful offense. Some of it was. I, I'm not the most happy about it. Um, but knowing that, you know, they're going to install those principles makes me feel good. And then when it comes to like secondary tier guys for the Lakers needing to run and initiate sets and make decisions, they're leaving points out on the table. That won't be the case when Braun and Russ are back. And I still feel really good about them raising the floor of the freelance portion of this offense, as well as the set play portion of this offense. If, if the Lakers are truly, you know, committing to running good sets and they've got guys healthy, this can be a top three offense in my opinion. Defensively, uh, Similar stuff as before. I mean, back pressure in ball screens, peeling off when the big man steps up to contest. Who's in, So the dropping big man, he's going to retreat and retreat, make sure the, the lob threat doesn't get behind him, and then step up if he has to, if a shot goes up from the ball handler. When that happens, you as the guard defender of that ball handler, probably behind him getting back pressure, have to peel off and take that big man, get a body into that big man. From a back pressure standpoint, 
Monk and Ellington are the two guys I've seen struggle to really make an effort here. From a peeling off and switching standpoint, none and Monk are the two guys that need to do this a much better at a much better rate. They're doing it some, they need to do it more. Um, the, their like accuracy with it is not very high. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Let me see. What are, I'm, I'm looking through my notes now. So that uh, example I shared on the last pod about the weak side rotation when, when the Lakers are stunting from the wing to the nail and having that you know single defender guarding two offensive players staying baseline, keeping depth, seeing ball and man, and then recovering forward or where they are if they need to. We're seeing more of that, so that is, appears to be a principle of this team this year. Um, so that's good. Size is going to matter for this team. With with Ariza out, Phoenix had a 22% offensive rebounding rate, which is high. The Lakers, on the other end, it's not just that their defensive rebounding suffers, their offensive rebounding suffers. Um, and they were at a 9% offensive rebounding rate. So that is not very good. When you've got THT or Ellington or Monk as your small forward in lineups, you're going to have some issues. Mello from a data standpoint, doesn't have good rebounding data from a volume, you know, a conversion, team impact, uh, crashing habits, any of those things. We did see him, and on the film, at least in that second game, he was doing a lot of the right stuff, and he was getting a body into guys. He was hunting Aiton a number of times, and he was making sure his own man wasn't crashing to the boards a good bit. So that was that that made me feel good. All right, I think that's it for today. I, I have some notes on individual guys. I, I went and rewatched every single play that Ellington, Rondo, Mello, Kendrick Nunn, and Malik Monk all played defensively. So I ended up watching this game like six times. Um, but there's some good and there's some bad. I'll need to talk about this with Tom on the next pod because the Lakers have some, you know, these guys aren't like, it's not like they're just all, you know, this guy is a bad defender or this guy is a good defender. It's he's good in some areas, bad in other areas. We need some, you know, the the coaching staff has some work to do. So we'll talk about where those areas are and what the team can do to try to mitigate some of that and how the Ariza injury impacts some of this on a pod coming out. But for today, that is all. I am Tim, and this has been the Lakers Exceptionalism Podcast. See you next time. I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Planet Premier League podcast. Each week, Cesc Fabregas, Nader Manua and myself talk all things Premier League. As a player, you don't have time to talk. No. You don't have time to make a plan. You just need to deal with wave after wave after wave. We watched Coach Carter and he said, oh, afterwards, the game's just about doing this for your teammates. And I remember looking around halfway through the film and half the squad was asleep. <laughs> Planet Premier League. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.